Welcome to the EFC Podcast. Welcome to the EFC webinar on unpacking the Trinity Western University Supreme Court decision. My name is Karen Stiller. We are very happy that you're with us today. Today is primarily about answering your questions. We have three experts on hand for you. Our three guests are Bruce Clemager, President of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, Alberto Palazagopoulos, an Ottawa-based lawyer who appeared in the Supreme Court with this case on behalf of the EFC and Christian Higher Education Canada. We also have Justin Cooper with us, who is Executive Director of CHECK. I'm going to ask our three guests to start by giving brief opening comments on the decision as it relates to their areas of expertise, and then we're going to start fielding your questions which you can send in via the chat function on the side of your screen, which you should see. We've also been receiving your questions all week through social media, and we have some of those on hand as well. So let's get started. Alberto? Uh, thanks, Karen. Uh, I'll be as brief as I can be. The, the decision is actually two decisions, one coming out of the Ontario Law Society's decision to reject Trinity Western's uh, application for accreditation, and the second coming out of BC's uh, the BC Law Society's decision. So what was interesting was in Ontario, Trinity Western had lost all the way through up to the Supreme Court, but in BC, they had been successful all the way through up to the Supreme Court. And then ultimately, uh, a week and a half ago, the Supreme Court ruled against Trinity Western in favor of both law societies. The effect of that is that Trinity Western doesn't get to start its law school, uh, except or unless it amends or uh, gets rid of its community covenant, which includes, among other things, a commitment that all students will not engage in sexual intimacy outside of the confines of a biblical marriage between one man and one woman. So that's the effect of the decision. Obviously, it's a 200-page decision, and it's got really far-reaching uh, implications from the legal perspective, and particularly with respect to uh, religious organizations and institutions. Uh, what I will say is... The reason, if we, if we were to try and really get to why Trinity Western lost in one or two sentences, the court's rationale was that the law societies were created by their provincial legislators, le legislatures, pardon me, to regulate the practice of law, but they each had an overriding uh, legislative requirement to protect the public interest. And both of those law societies interpreted that mandate as ensuring equal access to the profession of law. And so the court found that since they had that overriding mandate of protecting the public interest, and since they both interpreted the protection of the public interest to include equal access to the uh, profession of law or the study of law, uh, it was a reasonable decision because the law societies had two options. They either accredit the law, uh, Trinity Western Law School or they don't accredit Trinity Western Law School. And in that scenario where they only had two options, the Supreme Court found that it was reasonable to not accredit the law school, even though that that resulted in a violation of the religious freedom of the Trinity Western community. And one of the reasons they found that that was a reasonable uh, way to go about this was because they found as a court that nobody at Trinity Western attended Trinity Western because they had a religious obligation to. Rather, they wanted to study law in a Christian environment because they thought it would be favorable or better for their spiritual development, but not required. 
So the Supreme Court found that studying law in a Christian university, in a Christian environment where there is a community covenant and where like-minded individuals agree to live in a certain manner was not necessary and integral to the uh, practicing of faith of Trinity Western students. Uh, so they found that this decision, while it did impede the religious freedom of the Trinity Western community, it didn't result in Christians not being able to practice law or study law. It simply meant they can't do it at that institution. So that's kind of a the the simplified way of of explaining what the court did and why they did it uh and I, I suspect we'll be talking about some of the major implications that might come from it later on thank you over to you bruce uh, yeah building on Alberto's comments uh, it was a very focused decision uh it was about uh trinity western's law school whether it be accredited uh the uh it was acknowledged that what trinity western is doing by having a covenant uh, is not unlawful. Uh, it's consistent with provincial human rights codes. There's nothing unconstitutional about what Trinity Western was doing. And also, again, as Albertus mentioned, that the decision not, that the, the test was whether the decision not to credit was reasonable. Uh, so in my mind, Albertus can correct me, but uh, if you understand the context, uh, when Trinity Western first broached the idea of having a law school, uh, the Federation of Law Societies of Canada actually approved the idea. And they thought that the, the, the primary interest of the law society would be, uh, will Trinity Western be able to um, uh, produce well-qualified and trained lawyers academically? And, and the Federation thought that they could. And so they had approved it. Then you had three law societies that dissented. And two of them ended up all the way to the Supreme Court. So while what they did was uh, the court interpreted reasonable, given the options they had, as Albertus mentioned, uh, they didn't say that it was un that um, the Federation Law Society must change its decision, or or we don't if uh, if Trinity Western decided to put a law school law school in Alberta or Saskatchewan or a province that didn't object, um, then uh, you know it may be also reasonable to accredit the law school. Um, uh, next one would be context. Uh, this is in the context of I think a couple other uh, cases that. Um, are, are pertinent. One is the Wall case. Uh, just a few weeks before Trudy Western's decision, we had a, a decision from the Supreme Court, nine nothing, which basically confirmed, affirmed the idea that uh, courts have really no jurisdiction or competence in looking at the internal affairs of churches, particularly issues concerning, um, you know, theology, uh, membership, discipline. And so, uh, we need to understand this in context. And also, of course, there's the whole Canada Summer Jobs issue that's uh, surrounding us, uh, which is a different set, a different issue. But I think also um, uh, often people, when they're asking questions, they're looking at Canada Summer Jobs, looking at Trinity Western and bringing them together. The last thing I'll say is that, uh, yeah, ministry in Canada is getting, is challenging and it's getting more complicated. Um, but as I said, uh, uh, and is actually the, 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 one of the problems for facing Trinity Western was as Albertus mentioned, they required a covenant in terms of people behaving a certain way. They didn't require adherence to a statement of faith. And they actually did that to advance their purpose. They wanted to be, in a sense, as inclusive as possible. So not let belief be a barrier, but to maintain the, the mandate of the institution, they wanted people to agree to live a certain way together, uh, to, to form community in a certain way so they could advance the purpose of Trinity Western. So it was actually the desire to be as inclusive as possible, that actually caused the problem because the Supreme Court noticed that division between covenant and not requiring a statement of faith, whether that that um, 
had a had an unintended consequence from Trinity Western's mind uh, that the law societies found uh, problematic. So I'll end there. Okay, uh, Justin, speak to us from the perspective of uh, Christian higher education in Canada. Well, again, building on the, uh, am I need to unmute? Yeah, no, you're good. We can hear you. Okay, good. Thanks. Building on this idea that the decision is a focused decision, uh, I think that for Christian higher education, the question next is the BC College of Teachers. Are they going to, in some way, try to build on this decision and copy it? And here, I think we need to remember, as Bruce said, that the uh, the 2001 decision uh, has not been stricken, uh, and so it stands. Uh, also, there's not, I think, a very direct legal link between a, a, the special treatment of law societies versus teacher education. Uh, but if this were, and Trinity Western may change its covenant in somehow to uh, to, to mute this, uh, this conflict. Uh, if the teachers were to be successful, there are six other Christian faculties of ed across Canada. They're in four different provinces. And so we could see something that like that get larger. But as far as professional accreditation goes, uh, the only other area besides law and, and uh, education that really has been militant is social work. And they had inclusive uh, accreditation standards already in the 90s. So moving on to uh, students, I, I think uh, this decision could embolden a disgruntled student to say, I'm going to challenge my community standards in my institution as discriminatory. Uh, and so uh, perhaps a couple of institutions have had near misses with students going to human rights tribunals. This may bring that back on the table. With respect to funding, that's already been touched on, and I'm happy to read this morning that uh, Trudeau's uh, summer grant uh, initiative is being challenged legally. Uh, let's hope that goes well. Uh, if it didn't, uh, it is uh, theoretically possible that some provinces might decide to take the same approach with respect to student aid and say, you want student aid, you need to check the box, and student aid uh, from federal and provincial sources is a large source of funding uh, for Christian higher education institutions. Uh, but again, here, uh, I think that a, uh, an Ontario government under Ford, uh, an Alberta government under uh, Kenny, uh, a, a national government under Andrew Scheer would look very different than what we're seeing now. And then let me end with this. Uh, I think, uh, as has already been mentioned, uh, there are a number of uh, Christian higher education institutions that do practice open admission, but have community standards. Uh, is this an opportunity to look at best practices uh, for community standards uh, so that they uh, are effective in maintaining a campus ethos by pastorally uh, and not legally when it comes to end? I'll stop there. Okay, thank you, Justin. Um, you guys seem really calm, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but my take on the initial response uh, to this decision was, uh, you know, people were really concerned and upset and alarmed uh, at the hit to religious freedom in Canada. So I'd like to just talk about that for a moment. And Alberto, maybe you can begin, like, how serious a blow is this to religious freedom? So that's a pretty loaded question, uh, Karen, but it is a blow. So so uh, we're calm, but we've had uh, some time to di digest it. Uh, there's no doubt this is a blow. There's no doubt this is a setback. There's no doubt that it was devastating and discouraging. Uh, 
But contrary to what some of the um, writings that have been uh, getting published are saying, this is not the end of religious freedom in Canada. The, the, the Supreme Court did not gut the Charter of Religious Freedom. Uh, as Bruce mentioned, this is a very specific and a very focused decision. Uh, and in fact, I don't want to get too technical here, but there are two uh, analytical frameworks that courts will engage in when there are charter rights being uh, evalu evaluated. And there's a rigid uh, analytical framework and there's a fluid analytical framework. And the court in this case said, we're going to affirm this fluid analytical framework for these kinds of decisions. People who like charter rights, they don't like this fluid analytical framework because what you have is you have a law society in BC and a law society in Ontario making the uh, same decision, all of which are getting challenged, and the court saying one is reasonable and one is not reasonable. So charter people who like charter rights don't like this fluid uh, analytical framework. What's good from this decision is that uh, four of the nine judges attacked that analytical framework and said this fluid one doesn't work. We need to reevaluate it, and it's problematic. So that's a good sign. Uh, but what's also good is that because the court relied on this more fluid analytical framework, or what, what is called the reasonableness uh, standard, that means it's not a binding precedent in all instances. So the first Trinity Western case was before the development of this more fluid analytical framework, which is why we all said this is a binding precedent. The reason the courts here below didn't rely on the first Trinity Western was because the analytical framework changed. So long-winded way, as lawyers generally do, of saying um, <laughs> we're calm because we appreciate and we recognize that although this is really discouraging and in some ways devastating, it's not the end of the world as we know it. In fact, it's a signal that this is a decision that is very specific to this set of facts and this legislation that was being considered. Uh, and it's also a hint that this may be the beginning of the end of that more fluid uh, analytical framework, which I think would bode well for not just religious freedom, mm -hmm. but all charter rights. Okay, Alberto, you were actually in the courtroom. You uh, were arguing as an intervener. Um, are, were you surprised when the decision came down? Had you Did you have a gut feeling as you were waiting for it? Well, I obviously had my, everybody had their own predictions. Uh, I had mine. I thought we would be successful. Uh, I thought if we did lose, it would be much more narrow. It wouldn't be 7-2, it would be 5-4. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I called it wrong, uh, as, as many of us did. What was more surprising was not that we lost, but that the two concurring judges, so the, the previous Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Rowe, really appeared to be on side during the hearing. They really appeared to be uh, in favor of giving Trinity Western the win. In fact, in the first Trinity Western case, Chief Justice McLaughlin had sided with Trinity Western. So that was more surprising uh, than the loss, I would think. Bruce, uh, how about you, your take on this in terms of a religious freedom um, hit? You're hearing from the evangelical community across Canada, I'm sure. Uh, what are people feeling and what are you thinking about that? Uh, two responses. One, it was a hit um, and, uh, you know, deeply disappointing. Uh, again, imagine Trinity Western. Uh, this has been a, a, a dream they've been building towards for years and years and years. Uh, put a lot of time and energy into it. As I said, the uh, the Federation of Law Societies had signed off. The BC, the BC government had actually granted approval, um, which they withdrew when uh, the BC Law Society objected. But even then, the BC Law Society, you know, they had engaged uh, their kind of board 
they call them benchers, had uh, sought legal opinions. And, and a lot of the legal opinions leading into their, you know, uh, the decision of the Federation Law Societies and others confirmed that Trinity Western was on solid ground. And so that uh, you, and again, you had competing uh, courts of appeal. You had um, a court appeal in Nova Scotia that said no to the Law Society. You had Ontario that said yes to the Law Society. Then you have a five panel, five member bench in BC that said uh, yes to Trinity Western. So uh, again, quite a diverse engagement, but I think the disappointment, it, it's, it's one of the, 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 the denial, but also given all the work that went into it, it's just, it, it's, it's, uh, be devastating for Trinity Western and those who've been fans of Trinity Western and hoping for the law school. Uh, on the, uh, the, uh, underneath it all is then, uh, looking at a fairly, uh, a decision that was crafted in with a certain fact situation in mind. And then that's where you start saying, okay, what are the implications going forward? And that's why I start off saying, and this is, there's a context here. Um, there's some other recent decisions involving religious freedom that we need to, uh, interpret this decision in light of those, uh, to, uh, um, and, uh, to Hogg decision and the Wall decision. Uh, and also just, um, yeah, looking at carefully at what are the implications and what does this mean for, for institutions that have covenants, that have statements of faith, uh, that are trying to be missional, uh, you know, to be as open as possible, but maintain their integrity. So the, 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 the landscape's changed a bit. Some of the rules, some of the guideposts have, have changed, but uh, we're still called to engage and be faithful witnesses. And so that's our mm -hmm. task before us. Justin, are other Czech schools worried? Are you hearing from them? Yeah, I think uh, one of the main questions is uh, community standards. Uh, are our community standards uh, appropriate? Do they need to be reframed? Uh, and, and that's the main thing that I've been hearing, uh, less so on the area of uh, professional accreditation, funding, uh, and the like. Um, there has been some talk and speculation that Trinity Western might decide to remove that covenant or change it. I'm curious about uh, your response to that, and maybe you could start, Alberto. Would that be a loss? Would that be a concession that they don't want to make? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, as it stands, if Trinity Western wants to pursue a law school, that's the only way they can do it, is if they either abandon uh, the community covenant, make it not necessary for the law students or make it voluntary. Um, I, I don't know if they're going to do that. I don't know what they're thinking about. I'm sure these are discussions that are, are happening around the table at Trinity Western right now because they're existential discussions. Uh, if they do abandon the community covenant, no doubt some will see it as a uh, uh, confirmation that this was not integral to the Christian faith or their Christian character and identity. Uh, some may say it was all for nothing. I, I mean, I don't know where I stand on that. Um, but if we put ourselves in Trinity Western's shoes, they're, they're, uh, this really is an existential crisis for them because, as Justin pointed out, their teacher's college might be next and then their right. nursing school might be next. And so um, I suspect that Trinity Western and all of the faith-based uh, in educational institutions are having that discussion right now because it really will uh, affect how and if they get to continue to uh, operate. Yeah, I think the only caveat to that would be those closed or covenantal 
uh, institutions where there is a statement of faith that you must adhere to in order to attend. I think they're they're still safe and I think they're still protected. Mm-hmm. Um, but those schools like Trinity Western, where you don't need to be a Christian or a particular type of Christian to attend, this is uh, obviously a very real issue for them. So. Yeah. Okay, thank you. This is a question that we received on social media this week. Is this decision a continuation of a trend against Christian institutions? Bruce, do you want to tackle that one? Um, uh, I, I, I guess it's, uh, I'm trying to, uh, you know, in terms of a, a trend, um, again, I just mentioned a few weeks prior to this decision, we had the wall decision, mm-hmm. uh, which is very nine nothing. Uh, it wasn't even based on the charter. Uh, but it was a strong affirmation that courts don't have the, uh, and Albertus argued in that case, uh, courts do not have the competence or the jurisdiction to weigh into internal membership decisions um, of, of uh, religious organizations. So a very clear, uh, they, they, that affirmed what has been kind of historically accepted, but again, nigh nothing. And so they said, basically, the, the courts are limited. There are places that courts uh, should not go. And so, you know, we have, we have that, um, uh, that side. Uh, so, yeah, there are, uh, you know, the decisions need to be read in context and again, and uh, kind of uh, read together. Um, but also I think the other side of it is that, um, you know, evangelicalism and evangelical institutions, I mean, we're, we're out there and, and that's part of our, uh, who we are. Uh, we want to engage with others. We want to care for others. We want to serve others. Um, we don't want to serve just our own, but we want to serve uh, people of other faiths. That's part of uh, our ethos. And hence, we're the, you know, it's the evangelical community that have the liberal arts colleges, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's, it's an evangelical institution that decided to have a law school. Hey, why not, right? Mm-hmm. We have the capacity. We have other uh, support within the evangelical community to, to fund and support it. Uh, again, the Federation Law Society's other group said, yeah, you'd be able to do this. You could probably do it well. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, there's there's few other religious communities in Canada that are actually engaging that way in terms of whether it's inner city missions or whether it's it's educational institutions, uh, camps, a whole array. I mean, that's where the Canada Summer Jobs has been kind of a, a, a interesting is that the media have now picked up on uh, the number of types of activities that churches and missions and camps engage in that serve others and uh, benefit the public interest and benefit the public good, yet are driven by evangelicals. So in, another way to look at it is that um, while I'm surely aware of, of you know, the, the ramifications and, and uh, the unintended or intended consequences of perhaps these decisions could be, on the other hand, uh, it's the evangelical uh, in, uh, entities that are out there administering. And so um, that's, we're going to be facing the challenges first. Yeah, and often we're facing the challenges on behalf of other faith communities that may follow us. Yeah, very on- entrepreneurial and risk-taking, right? Which opens yep. us up to these sorts of things. A uh, question from a viewer. I will give this to you, Alberto. Looking back, is there something we could have done to have prevented this outcome? I'm sure you and your fellow <laughs> lawyers have been thinking about uh, that. There, there yeah. are probably a thousand things we could have done to prevent this outcome. Uh, but realistically, the the... You know, I started out by saying this is a very technical decision and a very specific decision to these facts and this legislation. Uh, but frankly, I, my feeling is the court would have ended up in this, in this direction, even under a different set of facts, uh, maybe. I mean, that, that's obviously speculation, but that could have, uh, we could have ended up there. What's interesting is 
uh, as Bruce said, this is kind of a one-off. Your earlier question was, is this a long line of attacks on institutional religious freedom? In fact, it's actually not. Over the last decade, the law has been going in the other direction, in fact, affirming institutional religious freedom. Right now, the law is, is on, a, on a path and on a course towards recognizing that an institution, a corporation, an entity may, in certain circumstances, benefit from religious freedom. So uh, this is kind of a one-off. Is there something we could have done differently? That's the million-dollar question. That's the, the question all the lawyers involved have been asking themselves for the last 10 days and will ask themselves for the last 10 years. I think the only thing that could have potentially been uh, impacted the outcome uh, was if there was evidence to show that studying law in this kind of a Christian environment, which is fostered by the community covenant, was necessary and integral to the, the practicing of one's faith as an evangelical Christian. I don't think that's accurate, so that's why we didn't do that. Yeah. But I think if, if, if we had that kind of evidence, it might have changed, uh, it might have impacted the outcome. Yeah. Uh, can, okay. can, I, can I jump in there? Um, sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, 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 critical, a critical point. Um, and the, the majority were very clear that they're, when they're looking at the Section 2A, the religious freedom guarantee in the charter, they're applying it to what they call the Trinity Western University community. And, and in their decision, they focused on law students. So the question was, uh, a Christian law school, is it essential to their faith that they study law at a Christian university? And the answer was no. It was a preference. It would, it would benefit them. They would, they would appreciate it. It would enhance their faith. But was it essential? The answer was no. And that's where the minority kind of, um, they also use the test of Trinity Western community, in other words, law students. And again, all four, uh, well, three of them uh, in the, uh, uh, the McLaughlin and her concurring um, uh, opinion and then the two dissenters uh, thought that that should be much more robust. Uh, in terms of the, the, the infringement of religious freedom, but they too were focused on Trinity Western community. Another question is that Trinity Western itself as an institution, does it have religious freedom? Uh, because then you're in a situation of Trinity Western saying, well, yeah, it's necessary for us to fulfill our religious mandate to have a covenant. And who knows what the court would have done there? Because then uh, actually one of the concurring opinions by Justice Rao kind of drove a wedge between that and said, well, you know, this is this religious practice of having a law school is not necessary to the students. And actually, religious freedom doesn't even apply because it, it's it's not it's not a core religious practice. So I would kind of wonder what would happen if, if we had a more robust uh, 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 conclusion from the court about corporate religious freedom, whether a corporate entity has religious freedom. And then again, then the question of whether it's necessary would be the, the, the issue of Trinity Western saying no. For our to pursue our mandate, it's necessary for us to have a community covenant, and then it would be interesting to see how the judge. And I wonder whether the 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 the, the four, the five, and the majority would have been held together if they went down the road of asking the question about corporate religious freedom, because there you have some on that majority who had gone different ways. Okay, um, another viewer, thank you, has asked about this balancing of rights that we talk about a lot. So, and this idea that in the while there's no hierarchy of charter rights, certain rights have become more central for the Supreme Court. Uh, do you do you guys agree with that, Alberto? Can you just repeat repeat that last part? Yeah, this idea of the hierarchy of charter rights. Right. Apparently, um, a, a former justice had commented that while there is no hierarchy of charter rights, certain rights have become more central. <clears throat> and I'm just wondering what you think of that. Well, I mean, it's hard to comment on that. Uh, I don't think this case. Uh, creates a hierarchy of rights. 
uh, all along throughout the the litigation over the years, Trinity Western's position and our position uh, on behalf of the EFC and Czech was there are no conf conflicting rights here. So we've seen a lot of most of the religious freedom case law in recent years has been the result of a, a, a clash of charter rights or a conflict of charter rights. My freedom of religion versus your freedom of expression or, or picket or equality rights. And and the argument was that's not the case here. And in fact, the court didn't say that. What was very interesting is that nowhere in the decision does the court suggest there were competing rights here. There were competing interests, mm -hmm. there were competing values, but there were no competing rights. So uh, is there a hierarchy of rights? No, not uh, from a strictly legal perspective. In a practical sense, is there? Well, I mean, uh, certainly there may be, but uh, there should not be. Okay. Thank you, Justin. Um, there's been a uh, we've received a question. Do you think it matters that the covenant about faith was optional, but the covenant about behavior was required? Presumably, you have uh, a grasp on all the different types of covenants and standards with the schools. Do you think that was a factor? Well, I think Bruce has already addressed that, and uh, I think uh, yes. I think schools that have adherence to a faith statement as well as a religiously based uh, behavior community standard statement uh, are better positioned. Uh, I think you open up a different uh, set of dynamics when you have open admission. Uh, that being said, uh, I'd like to uh, hear reactions from uh, my colleagues about the idea that uh, there are other options between simply a mandatory covenant uh, or a voluntary covenant. Uh, and that is to say, uh, if there are community standards, uh, I think there are uh, schools right now uh, that are practicing something where students acknowledge the standards. The standards do foster a campus ethos, protect the religious identity, uh, but individual infractions uh, are dealt with, as uh, Bob Kuhn said, pastorally, restoratively, not punitively. And so in that sense, uh, standards are acknowledged uh, are they mandatory? No, there are students that break them uh, that this, the institution works with. Uh, okay. Is that a different model? Hmm. Thank you. So a lot of discussion is going to be taking place in a lot of schools. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, we were, we're getting lots of questions about the impact on the local church. Uh, people are concerned about churches that have marriage between one woman and one man as a state of doctrine and this possibility of the loss of charitable status, which I think the Canada Summer Jobs uh, attestation situation also added to that fear. So Bruce, do you wanna tackle that one about impact on the local church and what we can be thinking about? Uh, sure, uh, in terms of charitable status, uh, it was raised actually um, by the Canadian Bar Association uh, when they were arguing in favor of the law societies against Trinity Western that they thought uh, you know, the withholding of accreditation because of a covenant um, by a kind of a, 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 some entity with statutory authority, in other words, something that's, that's given, government has given jurisdiction in a certain area, can they withhold accreditation or a public benefit uh, if they don't like uh, the activities of the, uh, of the entity? And they thought that was uh, the, you know, kind of a natural uh, outcome. Supreme Court didn't go there. They didn't even mention it at all. And I think actually in terms of charitable status, it's, it's the, it's the kind of summer jobs kind of approach where you need to affirm certain things before you get, uh, some type of benefit or government grant that, um, that is, um, I think, uh, more of a direct threat 
at that level. But again, no one, governments, no one's raised uh, charitable status except for the Bar Association. And um, so uh, in terms of local church, again, this is not about marriage. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, there's, uh, we still have, uh, uh, and the, the dissent mentioned that there's still the Section 3 of the Marriage, Civil Marriage Act, which says that, um, you know, your view of marriage should not prohibit you from receiving federal government benefit or uh, protection. Uh, we still have the, the Supreme Court reference in marriage, which, uh, which they basically said they couldn't conceive a situation where a clergy or a place of worship would be compelled to, to, to marry someone contrary to the, uh, to their, their beliefs. And so I don't think that's not this. I think right now that the broader context of the Canada Summer Jobs and again, the idea of, uh, is it, when's it appropriate withhold accreditation? Um, that is more, uh, affects uh, us as churches or ministry organizations when we're accessing government benefits or requiring government accreditation. I think that's where uh, things are kind of swirling around now. We'll need to uh, decide uh, or, and, and it, it, for me, it comes down to pluralism and to what it means to have a, of a, of a, a, a neutral state. And the dissent really makes this clear. Um, in a robust um, society of deep pluralism, um, are we going to allow uh, entities shaped by those re deep religious differences to be engaged in the public square. And, and that's where the dissent uh, sent up a strong warning and said the, the implications or the kind of the, the direction, the subtle directions of the majority decision are implying that the state's no longer, in a sense, sectarian uh, or non-sectarian where it doesn't play favorites, but it's becoming a little more ideological. And it's doing that through the guise of uh, charter values. So it's it's right. creating charter values as a way to interpret the rights and freedoms and apply it. So I think that's that's the, the direct challenge that we're facing. Yeah. Uh, so a follow-up question to that from a viewer. What can or should churches be doing now in response to this decision? And how can churches support the EFC and other organizations on this and other issues? So it, should churches be doing anything differently now or just carry on? Bruce. Oh, I was going to let Alberto answer that. <laughs> I'll, I'll no, I've got up. a, I've got a really big one for him next. So. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, we need to. Uh, there, there's been a series of challenges now. The Canada Summer Jobs have been launched. Uh, judicial reviews. Um, Alberto was involved in one yesterday, uh, dealing a, a group of businesses, and uh, so that will work its way through the courts. So we'll we'll test the idea of the attestation. Uh, whether that is indeed, as we see it, a violation of religious freedom of conscience, uh, being being required to attest to a certain set of values in order to access uh, a government program, government benefit. So I think that's probably, that will be more telling for us going forward uh, than uh, Trinity Western itself. Okay, thank you. Uh, if I can just add, oh, can just add one thing on that. Yep. Um, the question was, what should churches be doing? Well, there's two, and one from a organizational perspective, two to support the EFC. Uh, one, Support the EFC because uh, they're they're boots on the ground. Uh, two, you you got to look at your policies. If you don't have any, you got to develop some. And if you do have some, the law changed ten days ago, so you need to review them. That'll apply less to churches, which are closed, and you have to have a statement of faith and agree to certain doctrinal positions to be a member. But if your church operates programs, or if you're a religious organization that is not a church, you really need to be looking at this because the whole world, you know, I'm. I'm yeah. reluctant to say it's the end of religious freedom in Canada because I really don't believe that it is. But I also don't want to belittle uh, the the implications. The law changed and the world changed. 
last okay, Friday. Okay, so right? tell us what a church should look at in terms of their policy then. Uh, well, so uh, in terms of membership and staffing, you, the Trinity Western decision likely has zero impact on your on your policies and your rights and your obligations. But if you operate programs uh, outside of the the parish or the congregation uh, and outside of your Sunday church service, you may it, it, basically if you're operating a program or doing anything that is open to the public uh, beyond your church service, you may need to be. Uh, looking at how, if at all, this decision and the implications it has on human rights law will affect you. So I, okay. I, I mean, it's very specific, but uh, you know, call the EFC for resources, call your lawyer and, okay. and do that Do that analysis. Uh, a this is for you, Alberto. A question came in about an hour before we began. Doesn't, tr doesn't this decision open the door or soften the ground to the eventual removal of the religious defense in the criminal code hate speech offenses? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, in fact, I'm not quite sure what the reference is. Uh, she's, uh, yeah, go ahead. So so I, if I'm understanding correctly, the question is, how does, in the criminal code, if you commit a crime against somebody on the basis of their religion, that is considered a hate crime? I think that's what this person might be referring to. Uh, I don't think it affects that at all. I don't okay. think it affects that at all. But I might have misunderstood the question. No, I, that's how I would have read it as well. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Justin, uh, the Supreme Court, the question is, did they have any trouble with any other parts of the community covenant, Trinity Western's community covenant? Um, and they say it seems like a very robust document. Of course, it talks about more than just marriage between a man and a woman. Was that just what this was about, do you think? My understanding is that's, that's precisely what it's about. They didn't question having a covenant. They really didn't zero in on uh, any other part of it. It really came down to this potential harm that the marriage clause could cause certain yeah. people. Okay, um, Alberto, back to you. Is it time to uh, take a strategy of avoiding litigation? For instance, with the pending education cases in Alberta, we could instead wait for the NDP to be removed in order to avoid bad precedent. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I put food on my table by engaging in litigation, <laughs> so I think that's a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea and a terrible suggestion. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think it is. In fact, I think this should be a call to arms. I know that sounds uh, militant, and I don't mean it to sound militant, but I uh, look. I'm in my 30s. Um, I blame old people for uh, the state of the the uh, law in Canada. Uh, and, and I say that in jest, but I, I do believe it as well. I think for the last 30 or 40 years as, as a community, we have taken the approach that we should not engage in fights. We should not engage in litigation. Let's compromise. We're in the world. We're not of the world. So you, okay. you can do what you want. Just don't, don't uh, bring us with you. And I think that attitude has got us to a place where we are now responding and playing catch up. Whereas, you know, the proverbial other side, not that there's necessarily a, a big bad guy on the other side, but the proverbial other side has been active in advancing uh, their policy goals or agenda or, you know, I'm trying not to sound conspiratorial, but they've been advancing their interests. So I, I think, in fact, we should be doing the exact opposite and, and uh, uh, being, uh, Bruce earlier said, we have to continue to be faithful. And I think we have to do that. And part of being faithful, I think, is not only... Uh, saying what we believe and living in accordance to what we believe, but defending what we believe in our right to do that. I mean, Paul used the law. Uh, I often joke about Jesus flipping tables in the temple. We need to start flipping tables. Um, and if you look at, at the big cultural changes in Canada over the last 30 years or so, 
marijuana will be the sole exception to what I'm about to say. Most of them, or all of them rather, have occurred through litigation, not legislation. And I think of, of uh, abortion in the 80s. I think of uh, same-sex marriage in the early 2000s. I think of prostitution. I think of euthanasia. Marijuana is the exception. And of course, there was a lot of litigation on marijuana uh, that sort of paved the way to where we are. So all of these cultural battles, if you want to call them uh, that, have been lost or won through the courts. And we probably need to start considering that as well. So as lawyers do, long-winded way of saying, uh, no, I don't think we should be avoiding litigation. But at the same time, we got to be engaging in strategic litigation. That doesn't mean we fight every case. That means okay. we fight the best case. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I can, if, please go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, uh, but also it's it's. I agree with Alberto. So we need to engage, and the UFC has been engaged for a long time. We'll continue to, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, and there's now more others engaged uh, in interventions and legal action now than there was uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but also, uh, it's really important that we read carefully um, what, the, uh, what the decisions have said. Uh, for example, uh, the Canada Summer Jobs issue raised the, the conversation about what actually the Supreme Court said on the issue of abortion. And the Supreme Court has never said there's actually a positive right to abortion. Um, in, the, in the marriage reference, the court actually ducked the question about whether the Constitution requires us to redefine marriage. Uh, they didn't answer that question. Uh, euthanasia, the, the, I would argue the Carter decision, it never said that there's a constitutional right to euthanasia. They said that in certain circumstances it should be decriminalized. And so unlike some of the parallel cases in the U.S., in Canada, the courts have actually, uh, you know, they've, I uh, agree, they paved the way to significant uh, cultural change. Uh, but often when you read the decisions, they didn't go as far as many people thought they thought they did or argued that they did. And they, they kind of step back. So again, uh, the loss, the, the, in a sense, the Supreme Court did not, I understand the, the serious nature of the decision and the blow it was, but they actually didn't say Trinity Western could not have a law school. They said the law society's decision not to accredit was a reasonable one. And so, um, we need to pick, keep that in context and, and take these decisions going forward and argue make the arguments we need to make and continue to engage, but also be, be uh, understand what the courts actually did say and didn't say. Yeah. yeah if I can just build on that for just mm -hmm. one quick moment, uh, Bruce is uh, absolutely correct. And when the court said that the law society's decisions were reasonable, they actually explained what reasonable is, is a, a lay term, but it, in this context, it was used as a legal term. And the court describes what a reasonable decision is. And they, in fact, say, there may be multiple different decisions that could be reasonable. A reasonable decision is one that falls within the range of reasonable possibilities. So what does that mean uh, theoretically and practically? That means that the nine other provinces in Canada who did approve an accredited Trinity Western's decision, uh, rather application to, to run a law school, those decisions were reasonable as well. So that's that's why uh, Justin Bruce and I keep saying this is a very specific decision, okay. uh, and it's not this overriding precedent uh, that that some people are making it out to be. Hmm. I have found myself wondering uh, if the Canada summer jobs attestation situation was actually more alarming. And I don't know, maybe we don't compare these things in that way. But am I wrong? Am I crazy, Bruce? Well, I don't. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think you're crazy. I, I see it. Um, uh, we'll see how the courts interpret it. But again, this was, as Alberto said, really it's the government taking the initiative. It's normally actions through the court. And here you had a government that's actually requiring 
uh, expression of a certain set of values to in order to uh, attain a government benefit. And those those values were had nothing to do with the actually tasks uh, mm -hmm. that the money was flowing for. And so to me, that that that's a difference. It's almost like Trinity Western in reverse. It's on its head. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a government actor setting up, in a sense, a covenant and requiring that you adhere to this covenant uh, to 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 receive uh, to receive a benefit. So I, I see it. It uh, is much more immediate um, concern uh, than this than the Trinity Western decision. Even though there are underlying it, there are uh, issues at play that are very concerning, like the issue of charter values and um, yeah. again uh, whether it's appropriate for, whether when a government uh, provides benefit to an organization, whether that means it's it's actually merely um, you know providing uh, support to an objective that the government agrees is the public good. Or whether it's it's condoning the overall organizational enterprise and its beliefs, those kind of issues I think are, are concerning. But I see cancer member jobs as much more concerning uh, directly than Trinity Western. Yeah, and if I can uh, if I can just build on that, uh, this wasn't a law that was passed. Uh, this is some kind of administrative regulation, and those are much easier to put in place. Uh, and and so I think it's alarming for those reasons as well. Okay, Alberto. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to agree with uh, Bruce and Justin, but I don't think you're crazy, Karen. And I do think that they're, these are related. Uh, and, and like Bruce, I agree that this might be more uh, concerning, right? So Trinity Western uh, showed up and applied for a law school, and I think they should have been approved, and like they were in most of the country. Um, but there are a lot of other uh, factors that must be met before you even get to apply for a law school. The Canada Summer Jobs is meant to be a open uh, program available to all businesses, for-profit, non-profit, uh, political, apolitical, so long as you didn't have so many employees. Um, so it's, it's supposed to be much broader and much, much more appropriate. And the implications, I think, of the Canada Summer Jobs, uh, attestation requirement is that if it's okay, if the courts say that it's appropriate and okay for the government to require an organization to adhere to a certain political, moral, social, ethical, and religious view, uh, in order to qualify, not even, you're not even guaranteed to get the grant by checking the box, but you need to check the box in order to qualify. Mm -hmm. If that's appropriate, why is it then inappropriate for the same government to say you must check this box or that box before you even qualify for apl applying for charitable tax status? So yeah. I, I agree with you that it's much more alarming. Uh, but because it's much more alarming, it's, it's also much more vulnerable. Right. Okay. Uh, we've had a couple of questions come in about homeschooling and, uh, pending cases in Alberta. So um, are homeschoolers, uh, should they be worried about the Trinity Western decision, Alberto? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how, uh, unless the governments pass legislation prohibiting uh, homeschooling in those provinces, uh, I, I don't see how this would affect that, that decision. If a government did decide to pass such legislation, then there may be some implications of the Trinity Western in any given challenge. Uh, and I think what would come is whether the family or, or families that challenge such legislation have a sincerely held religious belief that they must educate their children in a home setting. So I'm, I'm extrapolating a lot here, which uh, might suggest that, no, there should be no immediate uh, implication. Okay, Justin? Yeah. yeah, and if I can jump in on that, I, I think... Uh, Probably the link again to the Canada Summer Grants attestation is is one that's closer. In other words, uh, 
And I'm here thinking, first of all, of K-12 Christian education in five provinces. It does receive some kind of public funding. Uh, and again, there's nothing preventing those governments from at some point making curricular requirements. Uh, for example, the sex ed curriculum in Alberta that needs to be adhered to, otherwise the funding would in some way be jeopardized. Uh, but I think that is a different situation than homeschoolers because they're, I think, regulated in a much more indirect way, have a lot more freedom, uh, and uh, I don't think need to be concerned, certainly by the Community Western decision. Okay. Thank you. Uh, another question from a viewer. Did the Supreme Court comment on the claim made during this case that having Trinity Western faculty sign a statement of faith jeopardizes their academic freedom? Did that come up in the decision no. at all? Not no. at all. No. Not at all. No. So, so the, you know, the real immediate implications for, say, Christian educational institutions is if you are an open educational institution where you don't need to sign a statement of faith to attend, this decision has very real implications on you with respect to the student body. If you're a closed school, it, it likely doesn't. In neither of those cases does this affect the, the ability to hire people who adhere to a certain statement of faith. Uh, because although Trinity Western didn't require you to sign a statement of faith to study there, they did require you to sign a statement of faith to teach there. Okay. This is uh, this next question is pretty uh, legal specific in my view, but I'll I'll ask you, Alberto. It's about the um, Ontario. In light of the Trinity judgment, what is the likelihood of Ontario lawyers losing the lawsuit that will ensue after their license is suspended, revoked for failure to sign the statement of principle? I know <laughs> a lot of us won't know what we're talking about here, but sure. if you could answer that question. Sure. Well, I'll give a sort of a 30 second backgrounder on that. Uh, so every year, lawyers in Ontario have to fill out an annual report. It's very uh, basic, benign and boring. Uh, this is how much study time I did. This is how much pro bono I did. Percentage of my practice for corporate law, real estate and on and on. Uh, questions about trust funds and so on. And this year, they, the Law Society uh, added a new requirement, which was every lawyer filling out the annual report was re is required to check a box. So sounds fam uh, familiar. Check a box confirming that they have a personal statement of principles, which affirms and recognizes their obligation to promote uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, on its face, there's nothing wrong with that because diversity, equity, and inclusion are good things. Um, but many lawyers were upset about that because they don't, there's no obligation in law to promote any ideology, let alone an ideology that you may agree with. And there's also a lot of concern because the same law society thought that Trinity Western was not equal, not inclusive, and not uh, uh, appropriate. So how are they defining those terms? So uh, I, for example, did not check the box and uh, uh, a bunch of other lawyers did not. And so we may face discipline and ultimately we may face losing our license for doing that. Uh, and the question was in reference to a legal challenge brought saying that that is unconstitutional. So yeah. uh, how does the Trinity Western decision affect that? I think it actually might help because a lot, uh, a lot of the uh, decision centers around this public interest mandate that the law society had, which they interpreted to include uh, or to mean ensuring equal access to the profession. And the court found that the community covenant acted as a barrier, or rather the court found that the law society's conclusion that the community covenant acted as a barrier to the entry to the practice of law on the basis of immutable characteristics unrelated to skill and competence, that that was an appropriate 
interpretation of their statutory mandate to protect the public interest, which in simple terms means barriers to access to the practice of law and immutable characteristics unrelated to skill and competence is against the public interest. So uh, if this case can now suggest that a person's moral view or conscience or religious view or freedom of expression uh, prohibits them or precludes them from making that attestation uh, or, the, or having that statement of principles, uh, they could argue that this is contrary to the public interest because it acts as a barrier to the entry to the practice of law on the basis of immutable characteristics unrelated to competence and skills. So uh, it doesn't always work that way where you take language from one case and use it in yours, but if the courts want to be consistent, mm. and in fact, if the law society wants to be consistent, I don't see how they can continue to push that statement of principles. Wow, so that'll be an interesting case to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bruce, uh, let's start with you. I'm wondering right now, in terms of the big bird's eye view picture here, what is the best thing the Christian community in Canada can be doing right now? And what would be the worst thing? Uh, uh, the worst thing would be to withdraw okay. uh, mm -hmm. and become mm -hmm. insular. Um, the best thing is to continue to engage, uh, to, you know, love God by loving our neighbor, um, engage fully and, uh, and be fully present within our society as Christian. Um, and, uh, but realize as, as, uh, Herodotus put it, that the landscape has changed and, uh, you know, there's, there's different expectations and, and our freedoms and rights are being interpreted differently than they had before. And uh, so we need to be um, kind of a situational awareness, I guess. Be aware mm -hmm. of the context, uh, you know, double down on, on look at your mission, your mandate, what you're trying to accomplish and, uh, and <laughs> consult a good lawyer and, and make sure you're, you're, you're dutiful in terms of uh, that dimension of life. But don't let that dimension of life inhibit you from doing what God has called us to be and to do. Justin? What's your answer to that question? The best and the worst thing the Christian community could be doing now? I think the worst thing uh, would be to uh, to be striking back with with very uh, strident and, and unbalanced kinds of arguments and claims. Uh, I think those uh, those can undermine uh, our case. I think the best thing uh, that the Christian community can be doing uh, would be, first of all, and I and I mean this sincerely, steadfast prayer, uh, because at bottom this is a spiritual battle. And uh, the word teaches us that our primary weapon uh, is not words, uh, it is prayer. It's uh, to do spiritual warfare. And so uh, I really, uh, you know, this, this is not a landmark thing legally, but I hope it's going to be a decisive hinge for the Christian community in, in Canada to really call us together to say, let's wake up. Uh, we have stories to share. Uh, we have institutions, as Bruce has said, that contribute to the public good. Uh, uh, let's celebrate that. Uh, let's do more of that. Let's engage the public square uh, with the witness uh, that we have and use the freedom that we have in this land. Thank you. Alberto? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Uh, I, I think withdrawal from these battles, uh, battle is perhaps a strong word, sort of got us to where we are, so that would be a terrible thing. Um, uh, you know, we got to walk into the table and flip a table, uh, walk into the temple and flip a table. We just got to be strategic about which temples and which tables we walk into and flip. Well, uh, I will end by saying thank you. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Alberto. Thank you, Justin. I think you've helped us 
set this in context and um, understand more what's going on and what we can watch for in the days to come. And thank you uh, most of all to the people who joined us and sent in such fabulous questions. Uh, they, they really helped. So thank you for that. Uh, this webinar is going to be posted online on our website, the efc.ca backslash webinars. That will happen uh, imminently, so you can share it with people who are unable to join us today. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.